Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at cccLife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, every month here at Christ Community, we celebrate communion. Uh, We usually do it on the first weekend of the month. We're not doing that today, but if you've been around a while, you have probably been around for a communion service. Uh, If you've been to other churches, uh, this is something that is a regular central part of of worship in Christian churches. We have been doing it for 2,000 years, and it isn't just a tradition that we made up. We we didn't just think, you know, uh, this bread would be great to symbolize Jesus's body, and this uh, cup of juice or wine would be great to symbolize Jesus's blood. That was actually given to us by Jesus himself. And so often, when we introduce communion, and, and most churches do it this way, Some of the words we use to explain and introduce what we're doing are the very words that Jesus used when he first introduced them. So when we introduce the cup, you will often hear me say this. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the cup and he blessed it and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, again, if you've been around, you've probably heard those words. They might sound very familiar to you. And you say, oh, I kind of get what that's about. But here's the question. If someone asked you, they they showed up, you had a guest here, or uh, a friend was in a church, and they said, what do you mean by those words? Especially, what does it mean when you say, this cup is the new covenant? The new covenant. First of all, what's a covenant? And where was the old one? Why do we have a new one? What is going on? Can you explain to me? the idea of the new covenant. I'm guessing that many of us, even if we kind of have a sense of what it is, would struggle to explain what that means. We're not really sure what we mean by the new covenant. Today, I want to remedy that because the idea of the new covenant is central. It's one of the most central things in the Bible. In fact, it is so significant in the Bible that the early church actually named a portion of the Bible after it, that the new Testament, you know what Testament means? It means covenant, just kind of an old-fashioned word for covenant. So the the entire New Testament is explaining how the new covenant came about and what it means for our lives. So this is a concept we really ought to be able to explain. So we're going to be looking today at the passage where that phrase first comes up in the Bible. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. We're in the third week in a series on the book of Jeremiah. Our church has a Bible reading plan that we go through all together. Uh, It is the plan that guides uh, uh, hundreds of us in our daily Bible reading, including uh, uh, many of our children who are going through the EPIC program. Uh, We read together the same passages of Scripture. And this past month, we have been in the book of Jeremiah. And so we're uh, dropping in in this sermon series into four major passages in that uh, book to help us all understand it, to enrich our understanding of the book as we read it. And today, the passage we're looking at might be the most central, most important passage in the book of Jeremiah. So let me read it to you. It starts in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This will be the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. 
No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Quick question. What do you do when someone gives you a gift? You thank them, right? This book, these words in particular are an incredible gift from God. So let's thank him for giving them to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's unpack this. First thing I want you to understand from this passage is the problem of the covenant. The problem of the covenant. Uh, But before we get to that, we kind of have to define what we mean by a covenant. Uh, I used to work at a college and uh, my job was to mentor uh, college students, grad students, among some other things. And so a very common occurrence in my job was probably about once a week, I'd have a student show up at my office and they'd say something like this, Clayton, we need to talk because last night I had a DTR and I'd be like, a DTR. I'd lean in because I knew that whatever happened next, whatever they were going to say was either going to be a burst of joy or a burst of tears. Because you know what a DTR is? It stands for define the relationship. And this was a big deal Uh, because when, you know, a guy and a girl, they've been hanging out for a while and getting along pretty well and She seems to be into him and he seems to be into her, but they haven't really talked about this yet. And it's getting kind of difficult to keep telling people that you're just study partners, you know? They've got to actually say, okay, so what is this? Like, what what, what are we here? They have to define the relationship. And and this is what God is doing when he creates a covenant. The covenant is the way he defines the relationship with people. He's saying, this is what this is. This is what we are in this. Lots of people talk about having a relationship with God, but when you think about it, that phrase doesn't actually mean a whole lot because it could be any sort of relationship, right? There are parent-child relationships, boss-employee relationships, boyfriend-girlfriend relationships, attorney-client relationships. Uh, Technically, any kind of connection is a relationship, right? Even enemies have a relationship with each other. It's just an adversarial relationship. So the question isn't whether you have a relationship with God. It's what kind of relationship do you have? The covenant is the way God makes the nature of our relationship with him official and public and explicit. This is what it means. And a simple definition of the covenant might be this. A covenant is a promise that turns non-family into family. A covenant is a promise that turns non-family into family. Uh, the, the main covenants that we have in our society today, uh, we really only have two that are left. One is marriage and the other is adoption, marriage and adoption. Think about what happens in those covenants. Two people stand before their community and they make promises to each other in marriage. And what happens? They're unrelated people. And by making those promises, they become a family. Is actually the metaphor that God uses in this passage. He says, I was a husband to them. He's saying, this is the kind of relationship I had with my people. Or in an adoption, what happens? Parents make a a promise to a child that they are not related to, and by making that promise, they become family. They become one family because of that. And so in the Bible, this is what God does again and again. To define the relationship, he makes promises and gets commitments from his people to to say, this is how we are going to relate to each other. And he does this four times, four significant times in the Bible. And I want you to understand those four times because they lead up to this final covenant, the new covenant that we're going to talk about today. To help you understand that, I actually want us to watch this video uh, about the covenants. 
If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend, or your father, or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right. And this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many, and he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises, and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil, but despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great. So what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful, even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel in obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. So that's God's plan. He makes these covenants, and through these covenants, he is going to renew the world. But how does it work out? Look at verse 32. At the very end, it says, They broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. They broke my covenant. If you read through the Old Testament, 
Other than a few bright spots, most of Israel's history is basically 800 years of making promises only to break them almost immediately, again and again and again. And this wasn't just kind of a, you know, a few random bad incidences. It wasn't just a couple of slip-ups here and there. This was generation after generation of ignoring the covenant that they had made with God. And when this happened, every time this happened, God would send a prophet This is what the prophet's job basically was. Most of the time when we think about prophets, we think of someone who's there to kind of predict the future, tell us what's coming, that sort of thing. That is not, sometimes they did that, but that is not the main job description of a prophet. A prophet's job was to represent God, to be his lawyer, to be his attorney. That's basically what prophets are. They bring legal charges from God against people when they have broken the covenant. When they're violated, they say, here is what you have done wrong, And here's what you need to do to make it right. And they would point back to the covenants that God made with his people and say, these were the terms you need to return to the promises that you made. And the reason he sent the prophets was in order to get the people to repent, to actually turn back and say, I want that relationship again that that we're supposed to have with God. And so God is incredibly patient with this. Century after century, he sends the prophets, but nothing changes. And finally, God sends another attorney, Jeremiah, And this time, he's not just issuing charges, he's actually delivering divorce papers. He's saying that commitment that you made to me, you have broken your vows. That the things you promised, you have cheated on God by worshiping idols. You have acted like you don't even know him by committing injustice. The marriage is over. When the marriage is over, you no longer get the benefits of that relationship. They no longer share a home with you. They no longer share their money and resources with you. They no longer share their physical presence with you. And this is what Jeremiah is announcing to Israel. Those benefits of the covenant, God is taking them away. He is removing your king. His presence is leaving the temple. You are going to have to move out of the land that he gave you, the place where you lived with God. You got to leave. And this is what we've been talking about the last two weeks. God is sending Israel into exile. Now, here's the key question with all of this. Why did it go so wrong? What what was the flaw in the plan? I mean, this was God's plan to save the world through these covenants. Why didn't it work? Where, Where is the bug in the operating system? What was causing the system to crash? Notice again in verse 31, it says, they broke my covenant. God does not say I broke the covenant. They broke my covenant. Any of you work in IT, you work with computers, you help a company with their computer systems, help people fix computer problems. Okay, for those of us who do not work in IT, I want to teach you a technical term from that field, okay? Here's the technical term, PEBCAC, PEBCAC, okay? Uh, PEBCAC is a type of problem with computers that is very, very common. Actually, if you ask someone in IT, they would probably tell you it's the most frequent kind of problem they have to deal with. Do you know what PEBCAC stands for? Problem exists between keyboard and chair. (laughs) This is the reason the covenant was broken. The problem was not with God who designed it. The problem was not with the covenant itself. The problem was with the people who were using it. That it was a user issue. It was not a flaw in the system. It was a flaw in the people. Earlier in Jeremiah, he says this, Judah's sin is engraved with an iron tool, inscribed with a flint point. It is deep and it is permanent on the tablets of their hearts. The the problem with the covenant 
is the human heart. You've probably heard me say this before. I've said it a few times in sermons, but I like to think of the heart as sort of an arrow sticking out of your chest that points at whatever it is you think will satisfy you, whatever you think will meet your deepest needs, whatever you long for the most. It points at that and you pursue it. You run after it. And our hearts are supposed to point at God. He's the one who will satisfy us. He's the one who will meet our deepest needs. He is the one that we should be chasing after with all that we have. That's how we were designed to be. But sin has busted our hearts. And now the arrow points at everywhere else. We go looking for satisfaction, for our needs to be met in all sorts of different places. In success or money or sex or alcohol or perfection, or control, or safety, or freedom, or romance, or friendships. This is where I'm going to get what I need. If I could just have that, I would be satisfied. We have wandering hearts that cannot stay true to the ones we have vowed to love. We are like a husband or wife who is not convinced their spouse's love is going to be enough. And so we go looking for other lovers to meet our needs. This is what happened with Israel. They cheated on God. They broke the covenant and they're suffering the consequences. This is, this is where the story could have ended in the Bible, right? We tried, it failed, and that's that. But in this passage, God says, no, we don't need to end the marriage here. What we need is to actually renew our vows. We need a new covenant, And this leads to the second point that we've got to understand, the promise of the covenant, the promise of the covenant. When Jeremiah describes the benefits of the new covenant, they are staggering. They are staggering. What God promises to happen in the new covenant, there are three things I want you to see here that he promises. Look again at verse 33. He says, I will put my law on their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will put my law on their minds and write it on their hearts. God promises that in the new covenant, People will be transformed. People will be transformed. And it won't just be an outward change of behavior. It will be an inside-out sort of thing that comes from our minds and our hearts. So when Michelle and I got engaged, we did sort of the, the traditional thing. I did the traditional sort of thing. And I went to her father to ask for his blessing before I proposed to Michelle. Now, to understand what happens in this story, you've got to know two things first. First is this. Growing up, I was a very picky eater. I mean like a very picky eater. Basically, I ate meat, cereal, and things that could be cooked in a toaster oven. That's, that's about it. If I got a hot dog, I would order it plain, like dog and bun. That was it. I didn't eat things that had sauce on them or things that had touched other things on the plate. Like it was bad. It was bad. The other thing you need to know is this. I'd been dating Michelle for a very long time. We had dated about five years uh, before we got engaged. And so I'd known her family for a while. I knew her dad. Uh, Neither of us were surprised that this conversation was happening. And I knew basically that he was going to be okay with us getting married. So I wasn't worried about this, but I did prepare. I I prepared, you know, you you might want to talk about kind of what our plans for the future are and our finances and work and the kind of traditional things you expect for that sort of conversation. So I was ready, but I was not ready. I was not ready for what actually happened. So as we're sitting and eating lunch, I'm picking up my sandwich, which is just meat and bread, of course. I'm about to take the first bite, and he says, you know, Clayton, Michelle's mom and I, we raised her to really enjoy kind of new experiences and trying new things and exploring. And and so here's the question. I want to know, will you try new foods with my daughter? And it was like he found the soft spot in the armor and he's like, we're just gonna do that. And 
So I'm, I'm pinned to the mat and I'm like, okay, uh, what, you know, whatever you say, I, yes, I promise, I will try new foods with Michelle, we'll, we'll do this. That meant that for years after this, every time we went over to their house, he'd have something. He'd be like, hey, Clayton, you ever tried rutabaga? I'm like, no, let's try that, you know? And we, we, we tried all sorts of things. Here's the, here's the thing. At first, I did this very begrudgingly. I don't want to eat these foods, but I had made a promise, you know? And, and, and so he kind of, you know, was hanging over my head and I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. But what surprised me was that over time, I found myself choosing of my own free will to eat new foods. And I actually started to like some interesting foods. I found out what I was missing when I was turning down Thai food and jambalaya and fish tacos, even vegetables, guys, even vegetables. I have now gone to a restaurant and ordered Brussels sprouts and gave them my own money so that I could eat it. It's crazy. Now, I will tell you this, I still eat my hot dogs plain. I just like them that way. I know I'm a weirdo. This is what the new covenant is promising. Instead of just keeping the rules because they've been imposed on us, because we made some commitment, it's like, I don't really want to do that, but I said I would. Or this is the obligation someone is telling me I have to do. We actually want to do what we're supposed to do. The, the law is not something out here. It's written on our hearts and our minds. The arrow of our heart starts to point where it's supposed to. We acquire a taste for the things that are actually good for us. And when that happens, when it's written on our hearts, it doesn't feel like, well, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do now. It's I'm doing what I want to do because I, I want that for real. Do, do you have habits that you wish you could change? Like you wish you weren't the sort of person who lost their temper with the people you love. Maybe you want to be the sort of person who isn't always worried about your image, trying to impress people in every conversation and interaction. You don't, you don't want to be a person who's selfish and stingy with your time. If someone needs help at, at work or in your family, you're always like ah, begrudgingly helping them. You, you want to be a patient person. You, you want to stand up for what's right. You, you want to resist the temptation to find your comfort in food or alcohol or porn. You, you know what you ought to do. You, you know how you ought to want. You even want to want those things, but you don't. But this is the transformation that God promises in the new covenant, that he will actually change our hearts. How does this happen? How does the law get written in here? This is where the second promise in the new covenant comes in. Look again at verse 34. God says, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. They will know the Lord. In the new covenant, God says that people will be reconciled. People will be reconciled. This is our main problem. We have been separated from the God who made us and the God who loves us. We talk about this a lot. We were made for a relationship with God to actually know God. And all of us, no matter who we are, all of us have abandoned that relationship. We have gone our own way instead of God's way. We've said to God, look, I don't need you. I'll figure this out on my own. I will find some satisfaction somewhere else. I'm in charge. We say that a thousand times a day in different ways. And doing that, walking away from God is deadly. If you walk away from the source of joy, you are walking towards suffering. If you walk away from the source of justice, you're walking towards injustice. If you walk away from the source of love, you are headed for division and broken relationships. 
If you walk away from the source of life, you are headed for death. And this is the reason why the world is messed up. When it comes down to it, this is our problem. It's the reason our relationships are broken. It's the reason we ache for something more. It's the reason why in the end we die, not just in this life, but in the life to come, separated, cut off from God. But here is the hope of the new covenant. God says that in this covenant, we can be reconnected. We can be reconciled with God. We can actually know the Lord, know the Lord. What does it mean to know the Lord? In high school, I decided that for my foreign language, I would take French. Now, I realize in retrospect, I probably should have taken Spanish. That would have been more practical. I don't know a lot of people who speak French, um, but my grandmother was French and, uh, you know, there were there are more girls in the class, in the French class. So I took French. Um, and the thing is, I don't actually remember very much French. I, you know, bo- most of what I know is I can like count to like 50 if I, if I worked really hard. And some dialogues we had to learn about how to buy tomatoes in the market, which now that I eat new foods might come in handy. Um, and, and then I could introduce you to my friend Philippe. Qui est Philippe? Il est un ami. Il est sympa. Now, I don't have a friend Philippe, but once I do, that's gonna be really, really handy. <laughs> One thing I do remember from French is that they actually have two words for the verb to know something, to know something. There is savoir and connaître, savoir and connaître, and they don't mean the same thing. You cannot use them exactly interchangeably. When you use savoir, when you're talking about knowing about something, when, when you're talking about facts or information that you know, so I know the password, I know that she's an engineer, I know algebra, it's something you know about. Conetra is personal knowledge. It's experiential knowledge. So if I have met a person, I can say, I know Carlos because I've met him. I've interacted with him. If I haven't, I can't say it that way. If I say, I know Chicago, I have to have been to Chicago. I've had to experience it for myself. In the Bible, when it talks about knowing the Lord, in French, they rightly translate it with Conetra. It's not just about knowing about God. It's experiencing God. It's personal encounter with God. The the Psalms talk about it is as tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Not just thinking that the Lord is good. Tasting and seeing. Think about the difference of if I say, hey, you know, this honey is very sweet. It's very delicious. Versus you taking a little scoop of that and putting it on your tongue. There is a world of difference in the kind of knowledge you have when I tell you something and when you experience something. And this experience of God, actually encountering God, is what actually transforms our hearts. Paul talks about this, 2 Corinthians 3. He uses this image. He says, it's like all of us are with Moses, walking up the mountain to meet with God. And our faces are uncovered, and we're actually seeing the Lord. And the more we see his glory, his beauty, his goodness the more we are transformed into his image. The more we see him, the more we will look like him. That's what's going on. Because what happens is as we see his beauty and his goodness and his glory, the arrow of our hearts goes, I want that. And more and more we start to want the things that he wants and we become like the one we are worshiping. Now, when we read this verse here, it says, we'll no longer teach one another to know the Lord. We won't need someone to teach us. Now, when I read that, some of you might have been thinking, okay, so why are you up there, Clayton? Get off the stage. Bring on the band. They're better, okay? I was like, I get it. I get it. So why 
Do churches have teachers? And why does the New Testament actually say God has given some people the gift of teaching for the sake of the church? Well, it's because there are two types of teaching. There are two types of teaching. Uh, I recently read a book about an explorer, a guy named Percy Fawcett. Uh, He was one of the the, uh, first people uh, after the, the sort of native tribes who lived in the Amazon rainforest to actually go and explore the rainforest. And he went further and farther than anyone in the early 1900s when he was doing this. And oftentimes he would go by himself or with just one other person and he would spend months or he would spend years out in the rainforest just surviving on the land. And he would come back from those trips and he would tell people, this is what I experienced. This is what it's like in the rainforest. These are the kinds of uh, you know, animals and bugs and things that we, uh, we saw there. And they would write it up in the newspaper and they would send it out to people all around the world. They'd be like, wow, this is what it's like in the rainforest. People who had never actually been there. That's one kind of teaching to say, I have experienced something that you have not and I wanna tell you what it's like. Sometimes though, Fawcett would actually bring people along. He would bring people who had never been in the Amazon and he would say, let's go out together. And when they were out in the rainforest, Fawcett would not have to say, hey, let me tell you what the rainforest is like because they were experiencing it. They were in it, they knew. But even so, they still needed Fawcett to say things like, okay, this plant over here is edible or here's how to deal with those kinds of bug bites or that's an anaconda, don't touch that, okay? The kind of guide for someone who, it's not that they're like, whoa, what are you talking about? I'm not experiencing that. It was the person who said, let me explain to you what you are experiencing. Let me help, help guide you through how to react and respond to that. Two different types of teaching. In the new covenant, the kind of teaching that people need is the second kind. You are experiencing something. Let me help you understand what God is doing in your life. So when a a preacher or a teacher in a a church where Jim and I, we come out, we are not like Moses, okay? During the week, we do not go up on the mountain and have this experience with God and come down the mountain and tell you about an experience that we have that you don't. What we're doing in the new covenant is we're saying, okay, you have experienced God. And as we teach you, we are guiding you saying, let me help you understand all that you already have in Christ what God has actually given you, what the Spirit has actually done in your life. Let me make sure you understand and take full advantage of all that God has done for you. That's what we do when we guide Christ followers. Now, I should say this, not all of you in this room, not all of you in this room are Christ followers. Some of you have never actually entered into this new covenant. So when we describe these sorts of things, we're not describing something that is a live experience for you. And so for you, we do actually say, you need to know the Lord. You need to know God in a way that maybe you haven't before. We want to invite you in to that experience. But in order to experience that, we actually need the third promise of the covenant. Look again at verse 34. It says this, I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. In order to be transformed by God, we need to be reconciled to God so we experience him. But in order for that to happen, we first need to be forgiven. We need to be forgiven. And this isn't hard to understand. You can't enter into a new covenant, a new arrangement with someone until you deal with the fact that the old ones had been broken. If you had betrayed someone, you've gotta actually clear the air on that. If you stabbed your business partner in the back, You can't start a new partnership with that person without dealing with that past problem. If you've cheated on your spouse, you can't just move back in like nothing ever happened. We we know this in human relationships. 
It's possible for there to be restoration in those relationships, but there has to be a, a confession and a forgiveness first. We have to say, I have wronged you, and the person who you have wronged has to say, I forgive you. That has to happen. But this is what's so amazing about God's promises here is that he's actually willing to forgive us. The fact that he's willing to do that at all is astounding. He doesn't have to. I mean, he has kept his side of the deal. He has kept his promises. We are the ones who have betrayed him. But sometimes we think that it's sort of just God's job to forgive. Like it's automatic. It's what he does. It's, you know, he has to do that. That's, he's God. He's got to forgive me. But that's not actually true. God could leave us in our guilt and our shame if he wanted to. He, he has every right to hold our sins against us. He would not be wrong in doing that. And yet this is what he does. Psalm 103 describes it this way. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Think about how amazing that is. You don't actually have to bear the weight of your guilt anymore. You do not have to go through life feeling ashamed of yourself. The reality of your life, the deep, dark secrets of your heart have been seen and known and exposed. And it turns out you are still loved beyond your wildest dreams. This is what we long for, isn't it? To have someone to say all of those things, they're gone, they're cleansed. To have someone say, I know the reality and I still love you. This is what God is promising. He is promising to forgive our sins, past, present, and future, so that we can be reconciled to him and we can be transformed. It is incredible. But here's the question that still remains. How is God actually going to give us those things? Because thus far, we have not addressed the original problem of the covenant. Human beings have messed up every agreement we've ever been in with God. Every covenant we have broken. So God's solution to the broken covenants is another covenant? How's that going to work? Who's to say we won't screw this one up? I mean, imagine it this way. What if I said to you, okay, we walk out on a football field and I you know, put you on the 80-yard line and I say, I want you to kick a field goal from here. And if you can kick a field goal, I'll give you $1,000. You're like, okay, I'm going to try this. Now, the record for a field goal in the NFL is 64 yards. So you don't stand a chance, all right? But you go at it and you, you kick and you kick and you kick. And every time you try, you get nowhere near, nowhere near. So I say, well, th that deal didn't work out so well. So I, you know what? I'll make a new deal with you. Make up for the old deal that didn't work so well. If you can kick a field goal from 80 yards, I'll give you a million dollars. And I open up a briefcase and I show you the million dollars and I say, look at that. It's right there. You can have it. And, and, and you look at that and you think, man, that would change my life. If I could have all of that, you know, you, it's like you're reading this passage. If I could be forgiven, if I could know God, if I, can, I, I could be transformed to actually be a good person, that would change my life. I want that. And so what happens when you try to kick the field goal? Are you any better at doing it than you were before? Has anything changed? I just upped the ante and promised even more things. Is that, is that really going to make you able to keep the deal? No, it's not. If, if humans failed to keep the covenant that we made with God every single time, why is a new covenant going to change anything? 
How will God keep the promises? This is why we need to talk about the third thing, the provision of the covenant, the provision of the covenant. I want to point out two things about this passage. One is about what is present in the passage, and one is about what is missing in the passage. First, notice how often God says in this passage, I will do something. He talks about the things that he's going to do. So in verse 31, he says, I will make a new covenant. Verse 33, he says, this is the covenant I will make. I will put my law on their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. Verse 34, I will forgive their sins and remember their sins no more. I will do this. I will do that. I will do this. Second thing to notice is a word that is not present in this passage. The word is if. If. It never says, I will do this if you will do that. I will do this if you will do that. Here are the requirements if you want to earn this. It's not unpacked in this passage, but all throughout the rest of the Bible, especially in the New Testament, it makes it clear that this covenant, God is saying, I am going to guarantee that it works and it's all gonna be on me. Think of it this way. If we've got an issue of PEBCAC, if the problem exists between the keyboard and the chair, you can upgrade the operating system over and over and over again. But if the problem is the user, there's only one way to solve the problem and that's this. You have to replace the user. And so this is actually what God does. This is amazing. Here's the big idea I want you to get. The way God makes the covenant work is this. God keeps his end of the bargain by keeping our end too. God keeps his end of the bargain by keeping our end too. Let me unpack this. How does God keep our end of the bargain? Simple answer is this. Jesus. Jesus. In Jesus, God himself shows up to do what we were supposed to do but couldn't do. Sometimes people wonder, why did God have to go to all those lengths to actually become a human being and show up? Like, isn't there some other way he could have done this? Well, if the problem is on the human side of the covenant, we need a human to come in and deal with that. And so God himself becomes that human. This is the reason he was uh, from the family of Abraham, to fulfill the covenant with Abraham. This is the reason he was from the nation of Israel, to fulfill the covenant with Israel. This is the reason he's from the kingly line of David, to fulfill the covenant with David. This is the reason he's a human being, so that he would say, I am one, I'm united with human beings, and so I will represent them on this side of the deal. I will be their champion. I will earn for them what they couldn't earn. I will do for them, fulfill the the requirements and earn the blessing they couldn't earn and then I will share it with them. He actually goes one step further though. And he actually says, I'm gonna take responsibility for all the ways humans have broken the covenant before me. This is what Jesus was actually doing on the cross. He was taking all of the curses, all of the covenant, all the consequences of the covenant on himself. All of the, the problems we created with our sin came on him. He took our suffering, our shame, our condemnation, our death, and he took what we deserved and he suffered it. It should have been us. That was our failure, but he took our place. He becomes the sacrifice so that we can be forgiven. It's sort of like when two people get married. If the husband comes into the marriage with a huge amount of debt and the wife comes into the marriage with a huge amount of wealth, what happens when they make those promises and they they commit to each other? His debt becomes hers and her wealth becomes his and they take on the burdens and 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 the riches of each other. This is what Jesus does with us. He says, I've earned all these blessings, but I'm gonna voluntarily take the curse And we earn the curse. And he says, I'm voluntarily sharing my blessings with you. That's the reason. That's the reason we can be forgiven. 
the reason we can be reconciled, the reason God can say, I will be your God and you will be my people. This is the beauty of the covenant. God does not say, if, if you become a good person first, then I will forgive you. If you get your act together, then I will be your God. Then you can be my people. Some of you are stuck in this pattern of thinking. You just need to do more for God so that he'll love you. He'll be happy with you. He'll smile on you. You, you, you try and you try and it just feels like, you know, I don't, I, I, I'm always just a little bit behind and God's always kind of looking at me like, mm, I don't know about that. And you feel this weight of obligation that's hanging over you. I, I don't know if it's a, a hangover from your religious upbringing or whatever, but you don't feel secure. And I want to assure you, if that's you, God knows, God knows that you can never measure up. You can never measure up. And so that is why he did it for you. That's why he did it for you. This is the problem with every other religion or philosophy or self-help strategy. They all say some version of the same thing. If you do a good enough job, if you master this technique, if you can keep the rules, then, then you'll get the benefits. And it doesn't matter if it's the five pillars of Islam or learning Buddhist meditation or making enough money in the right investment so you can retire at 40 or CrossFit or whatever. Every system that tells you, here's how you can optimize your life or your eternity always says, do this and then you'll get this. But the new covenant, the gospel says, God has done this even when you couldn't. And so now you get the blessing. God keeps his end of the bargain by keeping our end too. But it doesn't end there. God doesn't just forgive us. He doesn't just say, you're okay, and then leave us the way that we are. I mean, some people have this notion. They think, you know, if God loves me, he, he, he's going to be fine w- with me right where I am. He's going to love me right where I am. And that's true, but only half the truth. God does love you and accept you right where you are, but he also loves you too much to leave you there. He loves you too much to leave your heart full of sin. He wants you to actually be glorious and good, just like him. He wants to give you that gift. And so this is where the Holy Spirit comes in. In the Holy Spirit, God himself shows up and shows up on the inside of us so that we don't have to fix ourselves. God himself comes inside to renovate our lives. This is how God writes the law on our hearts. This is how we know the Lord. This is how we experience God for ourselves. The Spirit comes in and opens our eyes, gives us a taste for what truly satisfies, gives us the power to resist temptation. God himself. This is really, really good news. Some of you have lost hope for change. You think about your life and you wonder if you're always going to struggle, if you're always going to be spinning your wheels, if your entire life you're, you're just going to be stuck in this place. But here's the hope. The spirit of the living God lives in you and he will not give up on you until you look like Jesus. That's his promise. You don't have to rely on your own strength to do it. So many of us are like someone who's been given the gift of a sports car with a high performance engine and instead of getting out on the road and revving it, we hitch up a horse and we're like, we're going to try to pull this thing along. Or we get behind it and we try to push it ourselves. The, our, the only power that will truly transform us is the spirit of God. How do you get in touch with that power that God has already given you? Some of you might roll your eyes at this answer, but it's a true one. You spend time in prayer and in God's word and in worship. 
And you say, that sounds so ordinary. And you say, I wanted something really insightful. And, and you say, you say that all the time, guys. It's like every message. And it's like, yes. Because these are the means that God gave us to commune with his spirit. He said, you know what? If you want to hear from me, I want to talk to you. I've given you an entire book. I've given you my spirit. I want, I want to speak to you. He says, if, if you want to talk to me and pour out your heart to me, you can do that anytime you want. I've given you prayer. If you want to gaze on my beauty and delight in me and savor my goodness, you can do that in worship. It's right there. The thing you desire, it's right there. These practices are not rules that we've got to keep to stay on God's good side. They're not ways to earn God's approval. You don't earn God's approval through prayer and Bible study any more than you earn your mom's approval by eating the meal that she made you. She gave it to you for your nourishment. It's not a duty you do for God. It's a gift you receive from God. These ordinary ways of being with God in his presence, letting him shape you, are the ways you experience these benefits of the new covenant, being close to him. Now, all this, again, assumes that you are actually in the new covenant. And I know that that isn't true for all of you here. There's some of you who are hearing the things I'm describing and you're saying, I have never experienced that before. I would like to, but that is not my experience. Or some of you who you've been exploring trying to say, what, what is it that Jesus actually has to offer? What is it that people see in this? And you're trying to sort it out. And, and this is what people see, these incredible, incredible gifts. And you haven't received that, but maybe you want to. This is what I want to invite you to do. If that is you, if you're in that situation, this could be the moment. This could be the day you say, I surrender Jesus. I want what you are offering. Bring me into that covenant. And to do that is very, very simple. Again, you don't have to do anything to earn it. You just surrender and say, Jesus, I'm yours. Give me what you want to give me. But one of the ways that we express that is through a simple prayer. We're actually going to pray it right now. And the prayer just has kind of three words in it. It's sorry, thanks, and please. Sorry, thanks, and please. I'm sorry for the way I've broken my relationship with you. I've walked away from you. Thank you, Jesus that you stepped in and did for me what I could not do for myself. You went to the cross, you rose from the dead to cover my sin and defeat my death. And please, please give to me those benefits. Forgive me, transform me, welcome me into your family. Let me know you personally. And so if that's you, we're gonna do that right now. I wanna invite you to pray this prayer with me. God, the promises that you make are astounding. And we want to receive them. And so God, we start by saying sorry. God, I'm sorry for the ways I've walked away from you. The ways I've looked everywhere else for satisfaction. The way I've tried to run my own life. The way I've done things I know that I should not have done. God, I am wrong and I'm sorry. Go ahead and take a moment and express in your own heart the things you're sorry for to God. And now we say, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you did for me what I could not do for myself. Thank you that you went to the cross. You took all of my sin and my guilt and my shame. You took the consequences and you paid them for me. 
Thank you that you rose from the dead, Jesus, that you are alive to give me hope. Thank you for what you have done for me. Thank you. Go ahead in your own heart, express that to God. And then we say, please, please, God, give me those gifts you've promised. God, forgive my sin. Wipe me, make me clean, take away my shame. God, please transform me, make me a new person from the inside. God, please welcome me into your family. Let me know you, God. Let me be close to you. Let me experience you. And God, give me a hope and a future with you. Please, God. God, we thank you. We thank you for each person who even right now has just surrendered to you and asked for that gift. God, I I pray that you would give them the deep experience of these things we've talked about. God, I pray for all of us, those of us who have, have put our trust in you a long time ago. God, we pray for all of us that we would experience these incredible, incredible promises of transformation and reconciliation and forgiveness in you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.